when you do a show, you don't know who's going to be next doing the bear. You just right. don't know. Right. So all of that little writer that's irritating you so much that's sitting next to you is going to be a showrunner in a minute and a half. <laughs> right. And they're going to remember that you pissed them off. And they're going to remember that you were great and right. you were sensitive and you listened to them. So I always tell directors, you got to be really, you got to think about your future. You can't trample on anybody if you can. Right. I mean, when I came to L.A. and I first started out, my sister was Kevin Williamson, who is now Kevin Williamson. Right. And but nobody knew he was going to be Kevin Williamson. But he remembers everybody who <laughs> treated him like dirt and right. who actually treated him with respect and remembered his name and all that other shit. So you just got to you, you have to you have to make not only alliances, but friends as you're traveling. Through this. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Visit PeteChapman.com to get your official podcast merch. Hoodies, hats, jackets, mugs, and other swag. And learn more about your host. All right, all right. What's up, people? Is this thing on? Are we back? Are we back? I think we are. Welcome to episode 51 of... Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Uh, this is the beginning of season four, and we're back, y'all. I am happy and happy and happy and happy to announce that we're back. I do want to do a little bit of a, of a catch-up before we dive in to our esteemed guest for this premiere episode. I was looking at the numbers, and I wanted to see what's been happening numerically since the last time we were together. So... June 7th, that was episode 50 with Charlie Day. That was 127 days ago. Um, numbers are important. You'll see why. Last week, the WGA strike concluded after 148 days. Um, today, and right now I'm recording this intro on Monday, October 2nd, SAG is meeting with AMPTP. That always trips me up. They are in their 80th day of the strike for a fair and equitable deal. And people are projecting that, you know, maybe a deal is ratified for SAG by Thanksgiving. Uh, maybe we go back to work. Let's just pick, you know, a clean date of uh, top of 2024, January 1st. Um, that day is 91 days away from right now. And if that's the case... Me personally, I will have driven off the lot of Universal for the Apple TV show that I was prepping back on May 2nd, 244 days ago. We're 244 days from this target date of January 1 going back to work. So that's about 67% of the year gone. And obviously, you know, we've got solidarity amongst the unions and people are fighting for their craft, their career, their worth. And as each deal comes in, it looks like, you know, the members are getting, you know, you can't get anything, everything you want in a negotiation, but they're getting parts of what they've sought. And so, you know, I hope that that's what we can do with SAG in the, in the very near term. But there is a huge impact. And, you know, obviously 244 days out of work is, is tough. 
That's going to be longer for some folks because not everybody was working up until May 2nd. You know, I've watched a lot of people leave LA and, and go to wherever they were from because they couldn't meet the bills anymore. They burned through their savings. We're near a, uh, a facility that just auctioned off all of its props. I believe it was Sony. And so, we, you know, all of these things have an impact. The city in general, Los Angeles, any major hub for production, there's a huge impact where these, you know, productions buoy the economy. And so I'm just really looking forward to, you know, getting everybody back to work, things getting squared away and, you know, telling stories. So here's to positive SAG negotiations, SAG-AFTRA with the AMPTP and getting this thing going. So in the meantime, though, that has left a wide open calendar for many folks, your boy included. And around August, after, you know, doing some traveling with family, seeing the, I call it the grandparent uh, national tour as we take our daughter Indigo to go see her grandma and grandpa on her mom's side and go see her grandma on my side. We started recording interviews for the pod in like mid to late August. And what we're doing this year is we're just, you know, with all of that available time, we stockpiled and we recorded our 10 episodes for season four over that six week period. And that's what you're going to get rolling week to week for the next 10 weeks. But, you know, creatively, personally, I've also had the time to finally finish a feature, which I'm very excited about. I'm going to go tap tap the keys after I finish this introduction. I've been reading. I forgot that I actually fucking like reading uh, <laughs> because that's kind of gone away uh, with work. And so whether it's reading about, you know, raising a kid or reading a book or a magazine, I've been enjoying that immensely. But most importantly, like I've alluded to, I've, I've enjoyed spending time with family, watching my daughter grow and finding new inspiration to tell stories and get back into the director's chair. So again, hoping that we can all be in our respective chairs or positions or crafts very soon. But how did we uh, carve out season four? Well, because no one knows what lies ahead as far as what the industry is going to be. And because we've had writers when I started recording and actors on strike, this is a director-centric season. I'm happy to present to you 10 people that provide insight and principles on how you might best anchor your creative career as we all figure out what the hell is going to be what in this changing landscape of entertainment, both film and TV. So in no particular order, you're going to hear from Reggie Rock Bythewood, Garrett McNamara, Anya Adams, Eric Dean Seaton, Allison Liddy Brown, Princess Monique Films, Jonathan Judge, Mo Marable, Bola Ogun, and our season will premiere now with the legendary Mr. Paris Barclay. Now, I have to give a fair introduction because you got to know who you're listening to if for some reason you don't. But Paris hails from Chicago Heights, Illinois, is Harvard and School of Hard Knocks graduated. That's my edit. Um, and he's a two-time Emmy winner, one of the most prolific directors across both drama and comedy and action. And he is someone that I admire a great deal. He directed two episodes of Dahmer. And if you haven't seen episode six, Silenced, I suggest that you check it out. 
and see a master at his craft. It's it's really compelling what he was able to communicate following a, a deaf character and putting the audience directly into that world in a, in a super emotional and, and creative way. So without further ado, let's get it popping and dive into our conversation with Mr. Paris Barclay, also a two-term former president of the DGA. Let's go. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. So here we are, man. I, I kind of want to start, and maybe you'll appreciate this as a director of all things, including documentaries, um, but I kind of want to start with a prologue of sorts and ask you, have you been at all surprised by the success you've had in this journey? <laughs> uh, totally is the answer. <laughs> I have been totally surprised. It was not my plan. In fact, my plan looked very different from this. So everything that has happened to me since I really started directing was basically against my will Mm. because my will had a completely different plan for my life, which I look back on it. And sometimes I say, shit, I should have done that original plan because that original plan was cool. What was that plan? Uh, My original plan was I was going to be a composer and I was going to write music and I was going to primarily write music for the musical theater but also for popular artists and do songwriting. And that was the most exciting thing that I could do and then that I did in college and high school too. And I figured I would go to New York and be Black Stephen Sondheim, but better and you know, more popular. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I got my most excitement. And to this day, I still get the, the most excitement out of seeing music that I've done, shows that I've done, produced, and seeing them on stage. That, to me, is the biggest thrill. However, it is not lucrative, sadly. It's not a way to make a living, and certainly not a way to make a living and raise a family. Right. And so I turned to other things. Now, was there, uh, was there like a, a fork in the road, crossroads moment where you had to make that decision? <sighs> yeah, I guess there was. I hadn't thought of it that way. But when I actually, I started out in advertising. Started out just doing television commercials, radio commercials, working for the big ad agencies, including the Mingo Jones agency, which was a black advertising agency famous for we do chicken right. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so it that's important. It was, that's it. It's got to be done it right. Was, it was like Putney Swope. Yeah. Was the whole thing. So anyway, I, and that's, you know, how I was making a living when I was trying to write musicals in New York is working in advertising, being a creative director eventually, a creative supervisor over teams of writers. And that has come back to help me in my endeavor here in the producing directing in particular role. But Joel Hinman, who's a friend of mine, had a music video company called Scorched Earth. And they represented primarily Adam Bernstein, who's now a television director of some note, but at that time he was a big music video director. He had done Love Shack, Baby Love Shack. And it it was a huge, just you couldn't get away from it on MTV. And actually, RuPaul was in it, by the way. Little known fact, when you watch huh. it again, you see RuPaul as one of the dancers. But anyway, so he wanted to start a music video company that had black people because <laughs> he thought there's so many black artists that don't have black directors. There are very, very few, Lionel Martin and a couple of others. So the amount of black music and music videos that were being made without black directors, he thought was ridiculous. 
Right. So he said, you're smart enough and you, I have the connections. If you leave your job, drop that nearly $100,000 a year paycheck and come and work for us, we'll create a company. That was and a lot I of thought, money back then too. <laughs> that was, a, I was making a lot of money back then. Yeah. And mostly spending on Coke, but that's another story. <laughs> uh, so I said, okay, why not? I directed one television commercial in my time in advertising and, uh, it was with Elizabeth Taylor. So it was a good start. And I thought, well, I could do music videos. I love music and how hard could it be? I love <laughs> music videos. And so he created this company with me called black and white television. And so when we started that, we created it in six months, we had no work and just nothing was happening. It was just not we were selling, we were trying to get ourselves out there we Had four different directors we were promoting and we just, it wasn't really working. We did little tiny videos that didn't pay the rent and it was a struggle, but we were hiring when we did crews that were primarily people of color. And mm -hmm. we thought oh, it's non-union, we could get them in, they can get the experience and then they can get eventually into the union. It would be a stepping stone. Fortunately for me, LL Cool J hired me. When Adam Bernstein couldn't do his video for Big Old Butt, Adam Bernstein recommended me. And so I owe a debt to Adam Bernstein to this day because he's the one who said, you should get Paris Barkley to do it. And I did my first LL Cool J video, which was Big Old Butt, a classic, by the way. Please YouTube it. It's, yeah. It is so politically incorrect. You will be <laughs> thrilled. And this was before Baby Got Back and some of the other ones. We were just showing booty like whatever. So... <laughs> So that started a relationship with Todd, as we call it, Cool J, that went through eight different videos. And mm -hmm. eventually, Moms Could Knock You Out and Jingling Baby. And then suddenly, because I got the MTV Award and the Billboard Award, I was this music video director. And then I got Bob Dylan and the New Kids on the Block and Harry Connick Jr. and Janet Jackson and Luther Vandross. And suddenly, I'm like making big music videos. Right. And that became the thing that suddenly my music video, I mean, my musical theater career sort of faded away. This was really starting to pay the bills. I was getting some notoriety and I would occasionally write songs, but I didn't have the wherewithal to, to do it full time. And then just as luck would have it, John Wells saw a reel of my music videos and he hired me to direct a television show in 1992. So I've been doing this since 1992, which I believe was before you were born, wasn't it? <laughs> I was uh, I was 15, and I was watching oh, that television okay. well, show that you close. were that you were directing. <laughs> so that that became the thing, and then suddenly I was directing and writing. I started writing more, and that became sort of my my calling card. So I'm curious if there was any like you mentioned you you've had this affinity and talent with music. Then you were doing music videos. Was there a, a wake up moment where you were like, oh, these are entirely different things? <laughs> uh, no, I thought they were the same. I thought it was storytelling. Mm -hmm. And as I look back, the smartest thing I did was use the record company's money to make my reel. Mm. Basically, with every music video I did, even Mom Said Knock You Out, if you see the video in its entirety, yeah. it has this sort of wraparound story of, Todd in this fantasy of boxing, but eventually he's just in his basement and his grandmother tells him to take the garbage out. Right. So even if it was a little bit of story, I always wanted to do storytelling. And so I used these videos as a way to show that I could be a dramatic storyteller. And those are the re those were I think those are the reasons why John said, hmm, this guy could tell a story with the camera. Mm -hmm. Was that a new was that was that a novel? 
thing for a producer to reach out to a music video director at that time for potential television directing? Yeah, I think it was very prescient of John mm. Wells. <laughs> but I also think, you know, I had the same I had the same manager as Anthony Edwards, who was a star in ER at the time. Well, he wasn't yet a star in ER at the time. This was just before that. And I think they had a connection. And so that helped to get me to John. But then I had to have this two-hour interview where I just talk shit. I mean, because you talked about this on your show. That interview is make it or break it. You have to come and you have to be like fully loaded with everything you are. You know, I'm talking about musical theater and I I know how to stage. And I'm trying to pull And from advertising, I've learned how to work with people and collaborate. Everything that I had, I was putting on the table to try to get that job. And I did. It was a short-lived series called Angel Street. It starred Robin Givens and Pam Gidley. They were mm-hmm. detectives in Chicago, my hometown. Mm-hmm. And it was terrible, but every scene was done in one shot. Right. That was the conceit of it, that each scene would be done from beginning to end without cutting as much as you possibly could. So that was great, a great yeah. experience for me because I had Ernie Hudson and, and, and lots of great actors, but I had to figure out how do I stage this? And I think John thought my musical theater background would, would help with that. So getting launched into it, it wasn't that much of a risk. He knew I had the theater. He knew I had a visual sense. And he knew I could talk to people from my experience in the theater and actually direct actors. And so he gave me a shot. What I didn't know is, even though that was his first show as an executive producer, the next show he would do would be ER just Mm -hmm. a few years later. And then he hired me again to do that. Yeah, those relationships are, I mean, it's so much about that more than anything else. Well, that's why I say when you do a show, you don't know who's going to be next doing the bear. You just right. don't know. Right. So all of that little writer that's irritating you so much that's sitting next to you is going to be a showrunner in a minute and a half. <laughs> right. And they're going to remember that you pissed them off. And they're going to remember that you were great and right. you were sensitive and you listened to them. So I always tell directors, you've got to be really, you got to think about your future. You can't trample on anybody if you can't. Right. I mean, when I came to L.A. and I first started out, my sister was Kevin Williamson, who is now Kevin Williamson. Right. And But nobody knew he was going to be Kevin Williamson. But he remembers everybody who treated him like dirt and right. who actually treated him with respect and remembered his name and all that other shit. So you just got to you have to you have to make not only alliances, but friends as you're traveling through the business. Have you ever had a reason or have you ever burned? I, I don't want to say burn a bridge because I don't I don't like that. I think the terminology of that is like sometimes the semantics of it are off because sometimes you need to burn that bridge down. You know, like it's just it's just all you've left me with. It's my only option. Like, have you have you had to do that before? And I'm not asking for specifics, but like, well, have I deliberately burned the bridge? Yes. I think I pretty much know a show is going to be the end for me (laughs) right about the time I get the script. Because, you know, I don't know if every viewer knows this, but when you're booked for a television series, you just are booked for episode seven. Boom. And then Mm. you come there and usually there's a script sitting on your desk. That's the way it used to be in our day. You're supposed to get it the day before. But usually it's sitting on your desk Mm. and you read it. And just by the time you get through it, you kind of know I'm fucked. (laughs) This is just this is like this is that script that. Is just not going to work. And and that happens, sadly, especially early in my career. Like Lost was a perfect example. I will name names. Like I got to Lost. It was season two or three. I can't remember. I was so excited about the show. I loved the show. I loved the actors. 
the pilot is still one of the most amazing pilots yeah. I've ever seen. I finally, they finally call me and they say, come to do Lost. And, oh my God. And I open up the script and it came like day four or five or something up crap. And I just thought, holy shit, they're going to hate me. I'm going to, mm. I'm going to, I'm going to just, it just, it had none of the major characters except Matthew Fox and Evangeline Lilly and, you know, Sawyer. And then that was it. And they were mostly on a boat. And then he was trying to figure out his flashbacks to how he got a tattoo with Bai Ling and just nothing happened. Right. And I thought, I'm going to take the fall for this one. And I did. Hmm. Hmm. You, and, and how do how do you, how, why do you think you take the, you took the fall if it was a script thing, just the virtue of the experience? The director, I mean, it's like the the director gets the hit. It doesn't matter the quality of the script. You end up being the person who ends up suddenly not, you know, you couldn't bring it to life. You couldn't elevate it, whatever it is. And it ends up being on you. And that's just the way society goes. Hmm. When, when they look back and I, I've had to fight this in rooms as a producer director saying, you you gave Pete and your perfect example a shitty script. He was trying to do everything he could do to save the script. Right. And you know, while that episode didn't come out very well, blah blah. I'm not saying they said that about you in particular, but that was not a great script you had on Station 19. And there's only so much you can do, but the director is the one whose name goes on it, and that's right. the one that often is blamed. I will I will say because I I have you here in this forum for a little bit. There there are two things that I, I, I really appreciate and take away from working with you on that show. One was actually before getting the job, which was in the interview I had with you, you had a legal pad and you, <laughs> and you had these questions that you were asking me from like posts that I had had on the blog on my website. And I said, oh, <laughs> this guy's fucking thorough, you know? And then the other thing was when we were going over some VFX thing for that Station 19 episode, and everybody was chiming in, and you said, I don't know, I've got a great idea. Why don't we let our director speak? <laughs> and everyone stopped, and I, I, they gave me the floor, and I was like, man, that's like, I was, I was taking notes on the style, because yeah. I, there are so many ways that you can navigate that moment as a director, and I've admired the way that you move through these different rooms and genres and scenarios with, at least from my perspective, without any dirt on your shirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, without too much. But, you know, I also when and I think you should become a producer director if you haven't already, because I think you'd be really good at it. I did but one season the, so far. Yeah. The role of being a producer director is try to empower the director and try to protect them. At the same time, because there's so many voices, so many people want to direct and they want to direct while you're directing. <laughs> so, so you as right. a British director have to resist the desire to direct, which is sometimes difficult for me, but it's one of those things that you have to do. But you also have to turn people's attention to you hired this person to be the director. Can you allow them to actually do the work? Right. They, it's just going to be their name they're, and they're going to take the blame, as we've said earlier. So let them do it. So I, I feel like you're the ideal person to ask this question. In your it's not about the strike, is it? No, 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 no. <laughs> in your in your estimation, like what is a director as far as how Paris defines it, and what is that director? What is the director's responsibility? What is a director? Well, a director is different in television than in film. 
So let's put film aside for the time being, because director means a completely different thing in film, still to this day. But in television, what I think a director is, is the ultimate server is in service. I think the role of the director is not to overrule and to micromanage and to control, but to see how can I let everyone come together to create this thing? How can I facilitate this process of 100, 200 people sometimes making a movie without people being unsafe, without people being, you know, their, their opinions being stomped on? How can I make this easier for every individual working on it? And a lot of people think, well, I think the director is personally calling the shots and doing things. And I think that is part of it. But philosophically, I think successful directors, and I think you figure this out because it's kind of in your book, realize that it's really the collaboration that you are, you are in charge of. You're in charge of throwing the party. You're the host. You're not just somebody eating all of the hors d'oeuvres. You're there to make sure everybody has a good time. I have never done a show in which I made actors miserable and it's been successful. I have made actors miserable, sometimes deliberately, but that show is not a success. So the only shows I get that succeed <laughs> right. is the actors feel comfortable and safe with me and safe in the environment that they're in enough to do their thing. And it's not just actors. It's also the script supervisor. It's also, you know, the DP. How do you make this party happen? Mm-hmm. So the ultimate director's job for me is throwing the party. You're exhausted at the end of it, just like a host. you got to clean up. <laughs> but everybody should have had a good time. Right. And if you really want to keep working, you sort of put yourself a little bit in second place Hmm. to the mission and to the script and to the story that you're trying to tell, you make that number one. How do I bring everybody together to this story? And whether you like it or not is immaterial. It helps if you like it, but if you don't, you still have to do this. How do I put this party together? Hmm. That's what I think that That, directing is. That's well said. I've never heard somebody say explicitly putting yourself in, in, in a little bit of second position, but it is what you're doing if you want to. Well, you, know. you don't have to be. If you're a fucking genius, yeah. if you have like a visual stylist, like what the fuck, everything you do is completely original and exciting and that's what they want, go do it. But I'm not. Hmm. I'm really not. I am a coordinator of brilliance. Hmm. And I heard, what was it? It was Rob Reiner said this once. He said, I'm the director because I can't do any other job on the set better than the people that they've hired to do. He said, I can't act better. I can't script supervise better. I can't do costumes at all. I can't do sound. I can't lift shit. I'm not a grip. I'm not a gaffer. I wouldn't be able to do that. I wouldn't be able to be a PA. Right. So I end up being the director. (laughs) You know, this is this is a, a first world problem, but like we just put a pool in in our at our house, and the it was great because the the contractor was there every day, right? Wow. And I he'd kind of just be standing around and like talking, hey, do this, and you see him pointing at stuff. And the couple days that he wasn't there, out of ninety, I don't, I was always like, wait, what's this? Because like <laughs> somebody wasn't there to be like, hey, do it like this, or make sure you get that thing. And it's it's that little bit of like being the arbiter of good taste is mm-hmm. is really important. And in, in your in your creation of music, do you find that that was a that transferred? Because if you were writing music, I feel like you it's not something I do, but I imagine you're trying to coordinate so many different things to to happen with one goal. Is that like a 
a transference to this yeah. job? The, the three parallels that I have are directing, composing, and cooking. Mm -hmm. I think, and I'm very good at all three of these things. And the reason I'm good is they're sort of the same mm -hmm. to me. I mean, there's raw material that you have and you put it together and you want it all to come out at a certain time. You want it all to build in a certain way. You know, when I'm cooking, I'm going to last night, what did I make last night? I made pork chops in a sweet and spicy molasses kind of thing. But you have to make sure that comes out at the same time as the rice and the vegetables mm -hmm. And I had a recipe, but I didn't like certain parts of the recipe. So I adjusted like they had whiskey in it. And I'm not going to put fucking whiskey in my <laughs> pork chops. So I changed that to apple cider because I know that apple cider will give me the same effect because right. I have experience. And directing right. is a lot like that and composing is a lot like that. But where composing and directing really come together is every episode, and you know this, is kind of a musical. I mean, not a musical in the sense of, but a musical in the sense of there's a rhythm to it and the right. pace and the build of a song or a symphony. And so when you're editing it, you're trying to make the music happen. You're trying to make it flow like a song and mm -hmm. you're trying to make it build like a song. So the episode really feels complete and the action rises and you choose your shots in a way that they bridge and build the momentum of it. So it's very musical in it. I right. often tell editors, I'm sorry, I'm so picky, but it's just the music. It's just not hitting rhythmically it's not hitting the beats it's too jagged here we need to breathe here but just like do i hold that note or do i go now to 16th notes really fast right it's it's very similar in terms of construction so those are three things that i think are sort of intertwined and i don't know did i ask you if you cooked in your interview i usually do you did and i i i, I i've only come to cook more complicated things as of late thanks to thanks to being home. Um, but yeah, the, the COVID or the strike? Both. Right. Like like COVID, I started making sauces. Before that, it, it was just like, let me let me put that steak on the grill or make some fish. Things that happen kind of quick and easy. Um, but now I'm making herb butter every week and stuff like that for some kind of uh, white wine butter sauce or whatever for a shrimp. Ooh, that sounds or, good. See, I like that. And I like, I find it very satisfying. Like, I like to try a new recipe and put it together just like I like to go to a different show. I mean, mm -hmm. in my journeyman days before I was producer, director, and stayed on shit for long periods of time, I loved the idea of traveling to another show, to another city, and right. meeting this family, which is kind of analogous to just, I'm going to make this different recipe I have made. That may be really complicated, but yeah. I'm going to try it. I did a thing with scallops and a tomato sauce. I had never done it before. You have to blister the tomatoes and... You have to then add vinegar to them and they kind of pop. Mm -hmm. I just love all the science of it. Mm -hmm. And then the final result of it. I love to eat too. So that helps. One little <laughs> tip uh, on the food tip. We were in Mexico and, and we stayed in on a like compound and had like local folks who were cooking for us every day. And they would take the tomatoes, wrap them in foil and put them directly on the stove. Ooh. And that's how they would like soften them up for salsa or whatever else they were making and it was it was great so they put them right on the range like, right on the range wrapped in foil like on high wow yeah a little, that's dangerous yeah <laughs> so that's very dangerous you stated the difference between tv and film but i'm curious to see how you transitioned into your first feature well 
I clunked into it is what I did. I just was like clunk. <laughs> and, and that was don't be a menace to South Central while drinking your juice yeah. in the hood? <laughs> yes, that classic, which still earns residuals that, to this day. That, that's, that, that's uh, funny. It's a funny movie. It, <laughs> that's a funny it movie. It does not die. <laughs> well, I had known Kid and Play because I had done a video with them, and they knew the Wayans brothers. And then I did a video with the Wayans. Was, I think it was for one of their movies. I did like a commercial promo video. And so they invited me to do this, and it was their first Wayans, Wayans Brothers comedy. Mm-hmm. And I read the script, and I said, I don't want to do this. This is for my first feature. This is not going to be good. But then everyone told me, including Sidney Lumet in his book, Making Movies, that if someone offers you a feature, you should do it. Because it's so hard to get a feature. If you're getting offered a feature, make the movie. Don't worry about what it is. Hmm. That was bad advice. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a tough experience. I mean, I got through it. It was very tough. Uh, but it's funny. And kids love it. And I hear about it probably every day. Or every other day, somebody mentions "Don't be a menace," so it lives in its own ecosystem. And so, for that, I'm 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 glad. But the actual experience of doing it is one I wouldn't want to replicate. Hmm. Were you Were you happy to return to television at that point? Yeah, but I've also done like TV movies. Like I did this great TV movie, The Cherokee Kid, with Sinbad, and mm-hmm. with with James, you know James Coburn was in it, and Burt Reynolds. And there was a big Western and we went to all the different Western towns that are now all torn down. Like Warner Brothers used to have a Western street where mm. they would shoot Westerns. And now they have all the buildings. That's actually where our offices were in cold cases where they used to have this Western town where they shot wow. TV series and movies at. So it was fun to go like in this picaresque journey around California to find all these great Western towns because that was the story I'm involved with Cherokee Kid traveling a lot uh, with A. Martinez. And that was a blast. I mean, that was a completely different experience to make a big Western like that with the horses and the trainers and Don Lewis. And yeah. We had so many great people. Ernie Hudson was in that, too, that it was just, you know, my son still watches it to this day and finds it hilarious. And then Stanley, Stanley Clark, the bassist and also composer, did the score. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He and I have the same birthday, and he did a sweeping, big musical orchestra score for it. And so that was my first time going to an orchestra scoring session or show you were doing. That right. was so thrilling. So, you know, and doing long form, I wouldn't mind doing it. And I'm looking at some scripts now, but it, now it's got to be really the right thing. It's got to be just the right thing. I'm very picky now. This is Charlie Day. You're listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook, is Pete Chapman's book from Michael Weezy Productions. The reviews are in. Greg Berlanti says, There's a reason why everyone who works with Pete falls in love with his work. The lessons he imparts here are invaluable. Do yourself a favor and read it cover to cover. From Sarah Gamble, Pete's sharing gold nuggets that will spare you a ton of wasted time and help you channel your drive, talent, and ambition in the most productive way. And from Jesse Williams, this business has everything to do with preparation and expectations. Transitions grounds lessons in reality while empowering our artistry to run free. Not an easy balance to execute. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook is available on Amazon and anywhere else you get your books. Don't forget about your mom and pop shops, people.
So describe what the journey was. It's kind of a, I feel like it's a, a, a broad span of time, but you answer questions so well that I feel like I can just give you one and you, and you thread it together. <laughs> yeah, um, I'll thread it or threaten it together, whatever. <laughs> like what, what's the journey from post Don't Be a Menace to becoming a producing director? Well, that's a really good question. I had only done about 10 episodes of television, eight episodes of television when I did Don't Be a Menace. So I hadn't done much. And none of these, there was like sliders I'm looking at here, the Angel Street show I talked about. Mm -hmm. I did a show called Second Noah, which James Marsden was one of the stars of. And then Don't Be a Menace came. And fortunately for me, that was right also around the time that I went to ER. So I didn't have to leverage Don't Be a Menace. I think before Don't Be a Menace even came out, I had done ER. Right. And ER came from John Wells. And then ER happened, the producer-directors talk. And I think Chris Chulak was talking to Mark Tinker, who was the executive producer of NYPD Blue. And Tinker said, do you have anybody new? We need somebody over here at NYPD Blue. It's like season three or four of NYPD Blue. And Chulak recommended me. And then, then Tinker hired me, never having met me. He just hired me based on what Chulak said from ER. And I think it was before I even got, I got a DGA nomination for that episode. I think it was even before that. So that's like, hired like 99 or so? That's like, let's see, 97. 97? Okay. I'm looking at the chronology here so I can keep it fresh. So I go to NYPD Blue. And once again, I get a script that's not written by David Milch. Hmm. And it's the first script they'd done that wasn't written by David Milch. Because <laughs> he had been writing everything. It was written, fortunately for me, by David Mills. And I don't know if you ever interacted with David Mills. David mm. Mills was a black writer who was extraordinary mm. and had worked on some great shows. I think he worked on Homicide before this, but he had been hired to be a black voice in the room at NYPD Blue. And he wrote this great script, which didn't actually hang on anything black and white. It actually hung in the struggle between the detectives and the uniform cops mm -hmm. and a battle between them. And that was the first episode, and David wasn't allowed to be involved in it. He, the network said, you got to start letting other people write this show. Hmm. And so David Mills wrote a script. He was there. We got to shoot it. And that was my first episode of NYPD Blue. I watched it last night because hmm. I'm doing a documentary tomorrow. I'm not personally, but I'm a subject in a documentary about David Milch tomorrow. So I rewatched it and say, what was that like? And I said, wow, David Mills killed that. It was just he got the tone. He got the show, he got the drama, he got the feelings, all that. And it just shows you that a really smart writer can come into a series and just get those voices and do it, right. even David Milch's voice. And so that was really terrific. And then I was offered to be a producer-director. They just said, hey, Michael Robbins leaving. Do you want to be a producer-director? And I said, what does that mean? And they said, well, it means you'll be here all the time. We'll pay you, and you'll direct a lot of episodes. Hmm. That was basically the definition of it. <laughs> Sold. <laughs> well, because of David's writing habits, which were somewhat sporadic, right. they said, we need three directors here in the house that can do these episodes by and large. So for a while, they had Mark Tinker, Michael Robin, and myself. Then Michael Robin left, and it was just us sort of dividing up uh, the major episodes. I do like four or five episodes a year of NYPD Blue, and, and so right. would Mark. And just, it's hard to throw a new person in when you're not going to get the script until the last minute. And, you know, it's a struggle. So then that that took off and created its own thing because I won the Emmy from that. And, right. Know, I was just fortunate that I ended up falling into, from the John Wells situation to ER to NYPD Blue, 
to actually getting Emmy Awards. It's all about being on the shows you were on. And I was so lucky that those were the shows that chose me with those writers. Right. Yeah, it, there is such a, luck is such a big part of it because you get, I feel for myself, like I happened to get hired into families early and I was able to build an episode count by by two, by three different families of like Kenya Barris, Rob McElhenney, and Shondaland. I got up to like 20 episodes, you know, while people were wondering if I should be hired I'm able to kind of remind, 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 remind. And then it's like, well, let's give that guy a shot on this HBO show because he's done, he's been working. And, and Yeah, I don't know. Could you do that today? Is that something that can be done? I guess maybe if you're in Ryan Murphy, mm -hmm. maybe in Shonda. I mean, maybe you can do that today. But it seems like it was easier back in the day. But some of the camps didn't hire, like David E. Kelly wouldn't hire anyone from Boxco. Mm. So there was always a, a, a conflict there. So I didn't get to do it. I've never done the David E. Kelly show, partly because in his real heyday, I was doing Bosco shows and it was just like, ah, right. Do that. So <laughs> right. Sometimes they're like, they think differently. I think some people would think Shonda is too soapy for their genre. So they're not mm -hmm. going to hire a Shondaland director. Right. So I tried to skip through as many different tribes as I could right. so that I could get a lot of, variation after nypd blue i think I, I did the show city of angels which i co-created and then i went back to the west wing which was really aaron sorkin with john wells overseeing it but really aaron sorkin and tommy slami and mm -hmm. so now it's a new camp you know and then right. cold case is a whole nother camp with meredith steam or now president right and so you just you have to keep finding your families and sometimes shifting them as time goes on how does something come how does how does city of angels come to be where now you're you're a co-creator well, Bochco, in his infinite wisdom, said, I want to do a black medical drama, and I think you'd be perfect for it. I know you can write, because I've been working with David and giving David my writing and getting him to give me feedback and stuff like that. So let's create this show together, because I'm just a white Jewish guy, and you're black, and we'll bring on Nick Wooten, we'll get it done. And so we did that with Diane Houston and with other writers in the mm -hmm. room. We created the first season of it. And, you know, that was extraordinary. I mean... Suddenly, I'm creating a television show with Stephen Bochco and casting it. And we cast Vivica Fox and Blair Underwood and a few people in small roles like Viola Davis. And, uh, <laughs> I've Octavia heard of her. Spencer, yeah. yeah. And Maya Rudolph. These are like our regulars. Right. Hill Harper. Yeah. We're all a part of that company of City of Angels, just doing their doctor things in the hospital. So it was really, it was really a great experience. It kind of spoiled me a little bit because it was in the first season of it it was really kind of a wonderful thing wow i'm creating a network show and it right. wasn't getting ratings it was a black hospital drama with virtually all black cast right. it was just not it was not happening but cbs kept it going right now it seems now, to their credit it seems from from the conversational through line and timeline of everything that's happening that things were kind of just dominoes were falling for you to some degree um was there ever what was the what was the challenge being a black man trying to move through this industry because I, I i imagine you were one of maybe a handful at this time that were really working yeah, I mean, we with any Thomas frequency Carter, yeah the still working and blah 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 honestly it was a plus i hate to mm. say it but i believe this to be true i think it was a plus 
I think it, it helped me if I wanted to do something like City of Angels. It gave me the credit because those are my people. But mm-hmm. also if I wanted to do the West Wing, they felt good because they had a black director. Mm-hmm. So kind of you could leverage it yeah. either way as time went on. You could do uh, all sorts of different things. You know, I went to The Shield, which is the next big show I did. It was great because they wanted to have this eclectic. Sean Ryan is very much into, you know, trying to get as diverse a group of directors as he can and having that energy of the change of directors and their attitudes. So then it was a plus. I mean, now it's harder because there's so much competition from you <laughs> and the young bucks. You know, now I'm like the old grizzled director. So nah. I have to pick up what I can, what scraps I can get from the table. <laughs> well, because, you know, it's different. There is ageism in this business. Yeah. And after you've been around a while, sort of, ah, oh, that's tired, blah, 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 blah. That's why I keep trying to reinvent myself. That's why I well, did Dahmer. I mean, I was I would not have done Dahmer 10 years ago. But I it, just what, would have said, no. That's so interesting, though, because I was looking at your, our one of our assistant producers does prep on each guest. So I have... I have a, an infinite scroll of your credits over here on my monitor. Infinite scroll. <laughs> <laughs> and I was laughing to myself because I'm like, all right, they give this guy 2014 NAACP Hall of Fame, 2021 Honorary Life Member at the DGA. Then, of yeah. course, the 2007 Robert B. Aldrich Achievement Award at the DGA. And I'm like, but you're still up to bat. You know what I mean? Like that, these sound like awards yeah. for people who have like slid into home plate and are now like waving from the dugout. That's but, funny you said it because we were laughing about that yesterday. We were talking about the DGA Lifetime Achievement Award because all the past presidents of the DGA get together to talk about it. And I can't reveal what we talked about, but one of the things sideways that we talked about is Spielberg. Hmm. So we gave Spielberg Lifetime Achievement Award 20 years ago. And he's made 13 <laughs> films since then. Right. And and classics right. after he won the Lifetime Achievement Award. He's made right. some of his strongest work. So, I mean, maybe we have to give it to him again, like a double Lifetime Achievement Award. Right. It's so consecutive, that, that sort of like, like a life two sentence. Two consecutive <laughs> Lifetime Achievement Awards. So I just think it's all, it's great, but you just keep going. You just keep going until you can't go anymore and keep trying new things mm-hmm. and you keep going places that scare you, you know, yeah. keep going to places that you haven't, you haven't cracked yet. That's why I'm doing this documentary now. Mm-hmm. On Billy Preston. Yes. Billy Preston. Really? I thought, see, I got the Billy shirt on because I'm going to ADR. I, I did not know the story that I thought I knew of Billy Preston because I sort of grew up knowing the music, going around circles, right. and knowing that he had played with the Beatles and some people called him the fifth Beatle. I like just do the headlines, but I really didn't know his real story. And as we dug into it, we've been working on it for two years, we discovered that he's heavily influenced by the black church mm-hmm. for both good and bad. Heavily yeah. influenced musically as an organist and as an accompanist. That's where he learned that skill to be able to play with anybody and be self-taught able to too, right? And their thing, self-taught kid who just he could just go behind Mahalia Jackson through Aretha Franklin through Sly mm-hmm. through all these people, Little Richard. But also the church sort of scarred him because he was gay and was never able to really deal with it in mm-hmm. any kind of constructive way. I mean, he didn't just wake up and go to therapy and say, I need to talk to somebody about this. Right. So he also had this hidden life that kind of ate away at him through the course of it. And so it became a really interesting story to try to dig through, to parse the church's impact on him and the church's impact on other people like him and how that may have affected his trajectory as a star. 
It's really interesting too when I when I hear you talk about it and and what we've discussed and kind of your musical start, right? And then all these different storytelling skills that you've been mastering and then now to do a documentary that kind of really probably calls on all of your skills as a writer, as a, you've got so many unique opportunities for music in this because how do you take what he's been involved with and weave it into whether it's score or whatever it might be. Uh, I'm excited to see that. Yeah, and we just I just got off for yesterday with Robert Glasper and company there. He's doing the music for it, and it's going to mm-hmm. be very, very interesting how we weave in the sound, the sounds of Billy and the sounds of Glasper. But bringing that back, I hadn't really thought about this, but maybe I identify with him because of his collaborative nature. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was really a selfless collaborator throughout his career. When he came in and fixed Abbey Road and let it be, which yeah. he basically did, and Peter Jackson gave us some outtakes of that, so we've added that to the to the mix. But when he came in and did that, it was without drawing attention to himself. It was just with adding the perfect riff, the perfect mm-hmm. piano fill on the electric piano, the perfect thing, and let it be. Dun, 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 mm-hmm. dun, that church organ period. Mm-hmm. You know, he just flavors the soup in such a way that the whole thing rises. And I think I identify with that. I identify with people who don't bring themselves up to the fore. They don't have to. What they want to do is elevate the project. Right. So Billy is, now I'm putting together, I'm going to use that on the trail if we promote this film. Now we're going to see where we intersect. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I'd be remiss to not ask because I, I know there's a lot of emerging directors that will check mm-hmm. this out and you know, maybe mid-career pivoting. Like, as someone who's been a PD, and I'm sure you are one that has a lot of pull in who gets hired as a director, what is it that you're looking for? You know what I mean? Uh, well, like, don't say stupid shit, uh-huh. is number one. <laughs> I'll tell you who gets the job with me. Mm-hmm. You come in prepared, meaning you know the show that you're all in there for. I mean, I've had interviews with people who have never seen the show that they're interviewing for, and it's been on the air four years. Mm-hmm. And they've never checked it out before the interview. They, oh, I was very busy doing this. I didn't get, they're not getting the job. Yeah. So you got to know the show that you're in there and you got to know who you're talking to and research them and sort of figure out where you connect with them. It's always clever if some people start to say, you know, I'm from Chicago too. And then blah, blah, blah. Where did you grow up? Blah, blah, blah. That's really good. So you make a connection with right. some part of their biography. I think is super smart. You got to have some work to show. Don't be showing up saying, I ain't got nothing. I'm, I'm finishing a short film next week, but I ran out of money. No, you have to have work and the work has to be good. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter the quality of the production, but the quality of the acting, the writing and the directing has to be good. Mm-hmm. So don't mean show me shit too. Fourth, I think it's really, really helpful if you can, and not everybody can do this, if you can tell me why this show needs you now, mm. what are you going to do? How are you going to do it? And sometimes that involves a subtle criticism of the show, which I mm. personally like. Mm-hmm. Writer, writers don't love that when somebody comes in an interview. But I, as a director, like someone who sees the show critically mm-hmm. and says, you know, I really would like to see more of this relationship or Sometimes the endings where you continue to do the same visual device over and over again, and I'd love to find a way to freshen that up. I like those little bit of active, imaginative ways of doing it. And then also it really helps if you're interviewing with me, if you can tell me about your cooking, because I will, I will go there. Like, what do you cook? Is it dessert? 
What do you do? How do you do your bread? What? You make raisin bread? How so do you make raisin bread? What like, if, I can't do that. What if they say, I'm, I'm really good at takeout? <laughs> That's not good for me. That's not good. Because takeout <laughs> is the opposite of directing. Although there are exceptions. Like right. Leslie Lincoln Gladder does not cook at all. God, God bless her. Mm-hmm. There are certainly exceptions. And some people are extraordinary. But I worry if you like takeout. Because I'm really good at ordering is bad for me. Because then you want things instantly brought to you all together. Right. When really the joy of the job is putting it together. Right. The joy of the job is bringing those ingredients into your wine, herb, butter, paste shit. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You know, that's uh-huh. the fun uh-huh. of it. And if you don't find that fun, then I think it's probably 80% chance that we're not going to connect. Do you go to any extra measures when you have maybe a challenging number one or two or three <laughs> on your show and you want to try and, in this meeting, decipher or determine the mentality of this director do you play any 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 games there it's it's yeah but i'm often wrong i mean Mm -hmm. i've often thought oh this person's gonna get along great with charlie hunnam they're a straight shooter they're doing a direct or some other person charlie hunnam's not difficult but he's complex Mm -hmm. so he's he's someone you really have to understand as a director to really work well with him and i've i've often miscast people when i try to really do it based on hoping to make the number one happy. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I'd say I'm 50-50 on guessing that because sometimes it's just chemistry. Right. People that I thought would never get along with the number one who's been problematic, just wrap them around their fingers and people I think are going to be able to handle it, get right. furious or are in my office crying. Mm-hmm. So it's I, I've sort of stopped that. I just wonder if they're a great director of people. But yeah. I realize I could, that's a God thing. I have to leave it to God as to whether or not they're going to work out. I remember you asked me, you asked me, you pointed to headshots on the wall and you said, who should we get rid of? And, <laughs> and I was like, oh, this, that's some fucking question right there. I was like, I don't, I don't know. And so I said, all right, well, part of me was like, I felt don't like name was, names here. I felt like it was, it was a trap. So I said, uh-huh. I, I said, I said, well, I don't, I, I said, that's above my pay grade. But I can tell you who I think is underused. Get on me. And I was, I, because I just felt like, I felt like it was that it was a great question to see how somebody, because how, how somebody responds to that tells you a lot, I think, right? Right. You ask a lot of questions just to see how people do respond. You mm-hmm. know, I do, I am curious about that. Sometimes I ask if they make shot lists, I worry about that. If they say they never make a shot list, I worry. Mm-hmm. I mean, they never make a shot list. Right. How do they express to everybody what they're doing? They just wait on the day and they wait till rehearsal and they sort of say it verbally and everyone looks at you and goes, what the fuck? <laughs> I mean, that's not a trick question, but sometimes I do ask. I can't reveal them now, but I have a future question. That one I forgot, so I have to remember that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> with uh, my records here say over 160 episodes of television. Is that correct? 178. 100 so 178 exactly yes exactly so (laughs) because we're rounding third here we're bringing it home uh i won't ask you to identify your favorite baby but i'll ask you maybe this maybe this maybe this helps maybe not helps maybe this makes it a different kind of question can you name the episode you're most proud of and i know that might be tough and then maybe the scene that you're most proud of 
how, what you were able to accomplish as a as a storyteller? Actually, that's not that okay. hard now because it, it's really NYPD Blues Hearts and Souls episode, mm -hmm. which Jimmy Smith dies in. That episode, I cannot watch in its entirety without just weeping. Mm. And part of it is because it's so beautifully written. David and I think Nick helped him on that too. Just wrote a send off for Jimmy Smith that was awesome. But also it was really emotional for us because none of us wanted Jimmy Smith to leave. Jimmy Smith mm. just had to go. Mm. And so so <laughs> we were all mourning. And so part of my job as the you know ultimate party through our coach is to keep everyone together. And I relive that whole experience of going yeah. through it every time I watch it. So there's the story on one level that's moving me because of the writing, and then there's the experience that comes back to me like a flood. Yeah. And it does have my favorite scene, which is the last scene in the movie when he actually does die, which flips through sort of a version of his near-death experience, seeing Patty, the guy who taught him how to fly birds, uh, mm. up on his rooftop, and, and, rec and Patty recognizing that he was a hero. Hmm. And telling him that he did these great things in his life. That was, that's always incredibly moving. I get a little choked up just thinking about it now. So hmm. that is by far probably my favorite. And when I teach my directing class, I do like to show it, but I leave the room. I don't watch it anymore because then wow. I can't talk about it. All right. Well, this is the martini. This is the final question. Martini's up. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> in a story about your life, um, who who's going to play me? Michael B. Jordan. All right. <laughs> All right. We got who's directing it? Oh, I don't know who's directing it. That's a tough one. Who should be directing my story? Who is really good? I think probably I want it to be a little crazy, so probably Lee Daniels should do it. Okay. What is it a film or is it a a, a series or what? Oh, it would be a film. Okay. And then <laughs> what genre? Horror. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's an emotional coming-of-age story, I think. That's what it is. And it's filled with music, and it's filled with sets that are truly parties, and it's filled with human connection. Because I think we're actually all in this particular business mm -hmm. to satisfy this need to be connected with each other. That's why strikes are so difficult, but also to connect with the viewers through the work that we do. Right. And it's all an expression of love. And I think... The story would end up being a love story. It would be about hmm. me loving myself. No, it would be about me <laughs> finding ways to express love and to show love hmm. through the stories that I tell. Because I do believe there's a lot of darkness. I don't know if you noticed, a lot of darkness in the world. So when yeah. I can have the opportunity to elevate and bring people's attention to the things we love, both in my behavior on the set and in the work that I do, then it feels like it's a worthwhile thing. I just think... That's what I wanted to experience. That's why I love jury duty, actually, that show, because mm. I felt in the end there was love there. There was love for that kid there and, and a love for humanity. Did you watch jury duty at all? I haven't seen it yet. Oh, you gotta watch it. It seems to be a comedy, but as it grows, you realize that it's really like a Frank Capra film. Mm. That is very funny. Laugh out loud funny, but also is very reassuring about humanity's goodness. And it seems like everything's going to shit, but I refuse to buy into that and I refuse mm. to propagate it. So I'm going to just keep doing the positive thing I do. I'm going to keep working with the unions and mentoring young filmmakers and giving people shots. But at the same time, I'm going to try to put things out there that elevate us in a time of really severe need 
Mm. So if my life story is going to be done well, it's going to have those elements, but it's going to be much more dramatic than what I said. All right. Well, <laughs> Paris Barclay, thank you for uh, joining us here. Uh, this has been an honor and a Greg pleasure. The, I'm glad I didn't go on to two hours like uh, Charles Murray did. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was a big one. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on IG via at Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is produced and edited by the multi-talented cut creator Tristan Nash. Assistant produced by the young mogul Jada George and features the wonderfully gifted Kelly McCreary as our announcer. It's written by yours truly, but I mostly come up with these questions on the fly, which you've probably noticed. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is sponsored by Sweat Equity, so go ahead and get your podcast swag via PeteChapman.com and leave a review on iTunes if so inclined. That shit matters. All right. That was Mr. Paris Barclay. Thank you for joining us on episode 51 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Everybody have a great week. Stay safe, spread love, and keep creating.